You are listening to the Parallel State. Okay, so this is State of the Nation, and it's Friday, the thirtieth of October, twenty twenty, and、uh, we have John Dovey and Joe Hudson Lett and myself, Simon Poulter, and、uh, we had a little bit of a break from the previous set of recordings that we did, and we decided to jump back in. Um, and John is going to set us up with the poem. Yeah, hi、uh, Simon and Joe.、Uh, thanks. It's great to be here again, and I'm looking forward to having another run of State of the Nation. It feels as though we're sort of on the edge of something that's about the same size as it was back in March. So it's going to feel very, very different this time round. And it felt like it might be important for us to be able to meet together and. Collect some of the voices from the parallel state network and try to share our experiences as we go through the winter. And I've been thinking about winter a lot, and I've been kind of—it's been sort of scaring me a bit the prospect of this winter, because I kind of usually look forward to this time time of year. I quite like the period between Halloween and solstice, you know, quite look forward to it. But this time, I'm sort of feeling a little bit nervous about it. So this poem. Is my attempt to 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 have a Christmas number one, so I'm looking forward to finding somebody out there who'll help me set this to music. And I know Christmas number ones are usually meant to be upbeat. It may not be that upbeat, but it's certainly sentimental. It's called Lockdown Christmas Number One. This year, Christmas will be in intensive care, and Cummings will be the head consultant. A fully intubated solstice. It won't be what I'd call exultant. It's going to be an induced coma, even more than usual. I mean, locked down to endless, strictly pinioned by our screens. It's not the presence or the food, though. Ten days of booze is okay. It's our survival across the winter that compels us all to say, "Happy Christmas! Cheers! Your good health to one and all!" To shine on in the darkness of winter's never-ending pall. We like to flash and spark through the longest nights of the year, dancing in the darkness to keep away the fear. We need to gather; it's how we keep up all our spirits against the emptiness that is our fate at the far edge of the forest. But this year, lo, it's come to pass that the star of the east is in tier three. The R number is out of control, and Christmas could be the death of me. The kids will be fine. They'll party like there's no tomorrow, but for some of us, the thing to avoid at any cost will be the mistletoe. Father Christmas, he's old and overweight. He'd better stay at home, I'd say, and his elves better not be partying. I will not make it past Christmas Day. No one's travelling to Bethlehem, or at least not the one in Wales. If Joseph and Mary are from Manchester, that's an end to their wassails. And the shepherds couldn't visit anyway. Their flocks have all got coughs. The wise men's Wi-Fi crashed, so the manger zoom got dropped. And Wenceslas, I heard he was delivering for Amazon, trying to hustle up a bit of snout, sending some deep and crisp notes home before the Brexiteers kick him out. So it won't be Christmas as we know it, and maybe that's no bad thing. We can recalibrate for the human heart and make do with a bit less bling. And when it gets too much, just say so. This is too much weird for me to bear, 'cause no one is immune to the need for love and care. So I'm gonna laugh when I.
can and cry when I must, remembering all living things need a little lust. Stay in the moment. I'll watch the red leaves float from the tree. I'll hold the warmth of my lover as they sleep next to me. And as the dark of the season wraps us up in slankets of night, remember that winter solstice always brings the light. Thanks, John. Um, really great to hear that. I mean, it's got some interesting stuff. Um, maybe I could start with you and ask you about the weird. Could you tell me a bit more about the weird? Well, yeah, there's this kind of really strong background anxiety, isn't there, all the time, the weird, that, that, that when it gets too weird, you know, that there's, there's, there's like lots and lots of people are just anxious and, and worrying about the future. So the level of anxiety in our day-to-day life has gone up. And actually, in a curious kind of way, it feels like to me like it's gone up from when we were in lockdown pure, it was like really simple, really clear, you know, and you knew the rules. And now there's all these different rules and no one knows what's going on and young people are out and about quite a lot and the students are all in town and, and, and the R rate's going up again and no one seems to quite work out exactly what the solution is because there's, there's all these different rules and tiers and stuff that no one can figure out. So I think just at the level of what should I do, there's anxiety about how to, how to be in the world and what, you can, what you're allowed to do. And then there's all the sort of background anxiety of people people's mental health really becoming much more fragile i think and certainly in my world and in my life i'm feeling that uh i also have to say that i've encountered more uh sort of one removed contact with the with the with the virus in the last two weeks here in bristol than i have in the previous few few months i mean there's there's a load of people i know that have have got positive, have had positive tests in the last couple of weeks here, and that hadn't happened to me before. So I sort of feel like it's a scary time, and that's the weird. Is it's just there's a, there's, back, there's a lot of background fear that's becoming foreground on a fairly regular basis. Okay, and same to you, Joe, about uh, what John's characterised as the weird. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I think for me it's uh, a bit like you're saying, John. But there's a hum. There's a constant hum going on and it's a hum that uh, the volume increases as it feels like it's getting closer and closer but and because it's invisible it's like this invisible war um, and you are the, the anxiety rate I don't think I think for me now is higher than it has been but because we, we're not too sure of what our rules are whereas before um, it was lockdown and you knew exactly what you had to do and you knew exactly what you could and couldn't do. Now it's sort of like, oh, what tier are we? And I found myself saying that to different people. What tier are you in? Just And, and they're like, oh, I'm not too sure. But they don't know what they're allowed to do, whether it's six outside, six inside. Um, it, just, it feels a lot more confusing than than before. And especially when you have young children well not young 19 and and 16 they've got a life to live so as a parent you know it's that okay every time they come in telling them to wash their hands and to take their clothes off and then you kind of think am I being too extra is this too much and is this putting on is this putting my fears onto them as well so it's just a strange time I don't really know how to act sometimes 
I think what you just said about putting my, your fears onto them, that's really an interesting, uh, that's really interesting and difficult, isn't it? That sort of sense that somehow you, we're sort of shifting the fears around, you know what I mean? We're sort of like, they're there and we're kind of passing them around one another and someone's carrying it at one time and then you're carrying it and someone else in the family's carrying it or someone else in your working situation is carrying it. It's like someone, someone has to be carrying it all the time. It's there, right? It's, palp- it's very much present. Yeah. I was just going to kind of take you back in time, uh, John and Joe. So when we did the first one of these on 20th of March uh, 2020, which seems like years ago, uh, Sean Sobers talked about the reason and the fallout. And he was talking about Naomi Klein's issue around governments that take an opportunity to, to sort of almost steal things through. And he also said what happens after this, what life will look like. Um, and he was kind of pondering here at that point. So, uh, and then Julia Head, a younger um, artist, talked about having all of her work cancelled. And it, the, the, the interesting thing about that is that these thoughts seem both a long time ago, but still very close and, and very similar in terms of the anxiety and uncertainty. Yeah, so it's strange. So. In in the past, must be about the past four five weeks, I've been on three different interview panels. Um, one for the Philharmonic Orchestra, who had a residency um, commission. Uh, another one was for work, Revolution Arts, and the other one, which was today, was for a small theatre. So it feels really strange that there is still this employment activity going on, but yet. Uh, child number three has just been told that he's going down to one day a week from you know a five day week job down to one day a week um, and then the rest of the salary will be made up by the government which I think is only about 60% so it's still it's it's hard to get a grasp on what is actually happening Um, and the way that it is affecting the various industries and, and, and the work force and I just wonder if there were some people who were told to work from home um right at the very beginning who who just took it as a kind of like, oh yeah I can just chill out at home and maybe didn't put in the hours who are now being made redundant or who are having their hours reduced um you know whether that thing about us being given control over what we do and how we manage our time and maybe haven't been as productive uh, with it and now is this you know is the people thinking this is payback from the companies for you know letting them go um and I just think there's we're going to be left with a an infinite amount of bitterness um from a, a large population I think John so what in terms of the compression of time going back to the 20th of March when we were going into the first lockdown and as you've said this might be the point where we're going into the second one. What's the difference, or does it just feel very similar? Um, no, it doesn't feel similar at all. I don't think. Um, I mean, I think at, at that period in March, um, we were we we had really no idea what kind of um, response from the state was going to come forward. And of course, what came forward, as Joe's just indicated, was furlough for a lot of people. Uh, or at least people that could work from home. 
I mean, I think that's been a very striking difference for me is between those people who can work from home and those people who can't. I mean, I'm what I'm a member of that class of people that can do most of my work. I work on Zoom. I'm a knowledge worker. Do you know what I mean? I work in a university, so I can actually do most of what I need to do on Zoom. It's not it's not great, but I can do quite a lot of it actually. Um, but there's loads of people that can't. Uh, you know, your your son Joe is a construction worker, right? That's you got to, you've got to be there. <laughs> there's another way of doing the work, and I think that's also been a striking difference between North and South. I mean, I think one of the reasons that um, when we came out of lockdown, rates started to pick up in the North was that actually there's a lot more people there who have to turn up for work. There's a lot more people there that aren't the, the knowledge the knowledge economy, whatever that means. Uh, it might well be something that's predominantly a Southern. So more 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 prevalent in the south of the country than the north of the country. I don't know whether that's true. I'm speculating, but it seemed like that may be one of the reasons that uh, the numbers started to pick up in the north first of all. Um, secondly, I think the, the the in the in the cultural industries and the creative world that we that we all kind of live in in various different ways. There was a, the, the, that that fear at the beginning that everyone was going to be out of work has been slightly tempered by the different various different cultural recovery funds which have trickled down to some you know to some places uh, that are just about managing to hold on I mean they won't you know so they might make it through the winter so I think that feels slightly more op- optimistic than it than it did at that point um, but there's still a lot of stuff that's going on. Um, in between the cracks that fall in between the cracks I should say you know like for instance I was looking at this morning at a crowdfunding campaign by a load of music venues to save a famous music pub in Bristol because things like music pubs you know it turns out if you're a sole trader and you run a, and you run a venue you don't you're not eligible for cultural recovery money so you know just people are now having to do crowdfunding and I think that's probably one of the things that will come out of this is a bit more collectivism a bit more things like crowdfunding a bit more sense of how we have to look after one another in our in our in our places you know in our cities okay joe um i've been sort of just going into all three of us have had sort of various things going on in our lives you know um in my case um my partner's stepfather has been seriously ill and not necessarily been able to access the health care um that he needs um you've been through quite a bit already i don't know how much you want to talk about that but uh yeah yeah that's that's fine um so i think the last um recording i think i i made uh i think my mother-in-law was ill or wasn't very well um who has been in a home she'd been in a home for five six five about five years uh suffered with alzheimer's and dementia and um she had visual dementia as well so she'd see things um but very much the past couple of years just in her own little world really um and then we had a phone call to say that she really wasn't very well um and this was sort of like when we were in lockdown and i have actually made some notes so i can make sure i get it all right um <clears throat> so um it was hard for her uh, her my husband peter uh, and also her daughter sandy to go and visit her there wasn't any clear instruction as to whether they could go and say goodbye or not because she was in the nursing home. Um, it then transpired that they were allowed in, but one at a time, um, of which they did. So, so that, was, that was great. Went in, um, but then she carried on for another week because that's what Billy does. Um, and then the time came and she passed away on the 10th of June. Um, 
at around about half past 10 in the evening. Subsequently, then it means we have to contact all of the grandchildren, all of the, her grandchildren. So um, told our boys that live here uh, and then had to phone um, my husband's other children, one who incidentally lives in Abu Dhabi uh, and is a the teacher there. And at the time, his wife uh, was also pregnant. So we made the phone call to Abu Dhabi uh, and it was about about half past three, four o'clock in the morning, um, of which was a, quite a surprise because um, child number one was awake at that sort of time, which was like quite surprising, uh, because it then transpired his wife had gone into labour. So, um, so my husband, so we lost Billy, mother-in-law, grandma, mother on the 10th of June, and then by the 11th of June, uh, a new baby had arrived, a little girl as well. So it, it, in one way, there was the sadness obviously of losing Billy, but then there was that reminder about the circle of life and that um, the things that you can be sure of are births, deaths and taxes. <laughs> so uh, so that was, that was sort of like a, 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 a it was a, a strange, bizarre situation to be in to be grieving and to have and to be in some way celebrating but knowing that we couldn't go and see the baby um and there was no point in booking anything at the time because because everything was on lockdown um then on the 15th of june my mum uh became ill she collapsed at home um and was rushed to a &E, and i was able to go to my mum and dad's house because um we were just down the road so uh, they took her into, into hospital and it transpired that she had a, a stomach ulcer which had been bleeding. Um, my mum had had a heart replacement valve uh, 12, 13, 14 years ago, quite a while ago, um, which meant she was on warfarin. So then the doctors had to get her blood, take her off warfarin, get her blood levels correct before they could actually do uh, the operation to uh, look at the stomach ulcer. So that took a few days um, and by the time they were able to do the operation and she came through, uh, by the 19th of June, they then informed us that mum was being put into isolation um, because she had suspected COVID. When she went in, she was negative. Um, and just in those three, four days of being there, um, a patient had come in to a green ward who should have been on a red ward. Um, and so not only my mum, but other um, patients uh, contracted it then. Um, so 22nd of June, it was actually confirmed that she had COVID. 24th of June uh, was our 20th wedding anniversary, um, of which we'd been planning to go to Mallorca. So that was a little bit of a boo. Um, uh, all this time though, uh, up to the 28th of June, my mum was still in hospital because they were then trying to get her blood levels correct so she could come out. Even though she had COVID, now this is the confusing thing, even though they knew she had COVID, I was talking on the phone to the doctors and nurses, trying to work out how I could, how we could bring mum home so she's self-isolated in her room and then my dad would have the run of the house, but that then also meant my dad would have to self-isolate for a period of time as well. So that was a a very stressful time because I don't even think they knew what the actual rules were and how long which of my parents had to self-isolate for. Um, by the 28th of June um, 
my mum's breathing um, was badly affected by COVID um, and she was moved to the ICU unit um, and then we were told uh, on the 29th um, that they really needed to be putting her on a ventilator. The thing with all this is that my mum uh, had devoted all of her life to the NHS and um, at the age of 18 so she came over to the UK when she was 13 14 um, completed her education here went to nursing school at the age of 18 and worked for the NHS all the way up until the end of her retirement uh, and she knew exactly what would happen if she went on a ventilator um, my mum unfortunately was the prime candidate um, with regards to catching COVID, she was overweight, she had blood, high blood pressure, she had diabetes, um, she had a weak heart, um, and she knew the effects of a ventilator on somebody like herself. But, uh, so she refused to go on the ventilator. Um, and then the following day, the 30th of June, uh, we've got to remember at this point though, we are also organizing a funeral at the same time as my mum being in hospital. Uh, so the 29th, uh, the 30th of June, um, the doctors phoned me and said that, you know, they'd had to put her on, they had to um, put her on a ventilator um, and, you know, she'd be, not, she'd be on it for at least 10 days. Um, and then at that point, I did say to them that if anything, if, if my mum isn't going to make this, um, please do not let her pass away um, between now and the 1st of July because the 1st of July was the funeral for Billy and uh, I you know it would have just it would it would be we wouldn't have been able to cope I don't think so if the doctor was you know you know he said we can't tell you what the situation is going to be you know we have no control etc so 1st of July we have a socially distanced funeral um for billy um and it was very strange having some family there some family not there how do you choose who to invite how do you not um we then had to look at the makeup of diff of the different families and then decide to invite you know maybe only one member of what would normally be a five six group uh, billy would definitely want to have had something at the end you know she loved her tea she loved her cake um, she was a beautiful lady. Um, so well, I'll say it, yeah, we had an outdoor um, wake um, in a, a local park. Um, got threatened by the park ranger <laughs> uh, because of the, the gathering. Um, but anyway, we carried on. Uh, so that was the 1st of July. Uh, 2nd of July, um so that night though on the first i did phone the hospital and they said you know they were turning mum because they find it works with turning a patient second of july i phoned in the morning like i always do and i can only say that they were they were waiting for me to phone because they knew they couldn't keep her going any longer she wasn't responding to any of the medication um and so they just you know they decided they, they said that they had to take her off um which then left my dad and I in two different places, um, having to discuss whether one of us we were allowed, one of us was allowed to go in and say goodbye and be with her. Because of, I would say because of our family situation and circumstances and the people in our family, my dad and I both made the decision that neither of us would go because it meant one of us would have to self-isolate 
and we'd need each other, quite frankly. So there was a, a lovely lady called um, Millant who was working there and she promised that she'd be there every step of the way and she'd give us a call um, when my mum had passed away, of which she did. Um, it, it only took half an hour, 35 minutes, and, and my mum was gone. Um, which then leads you on to the after part as to the the fact that you can't say goodbye um you know the last vision that you have of that person then the contacting of people then people are wanting to come and pay their respects but they can't and in the west indian culture death is a big thing you know it's 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 a huge celebration for us uh, and we have a thing called nine night which is where everybody would go to the house of the person that's passed away there's food there's bible readings there's talk um and it, it it's the celebration of that person which you couldn't have so culturally not only is covid taking away um uh, you know the, the black community it's also stopping so many other communities from carrying out what they always assumed was their cultural right um yeah so so that's that's <laughs> that's what's been one of the the major major thing that has been happening um with us and how how you cope with with death in covid and grief and trying to justify your grief or they're not justifying your grief because the figures tell you that there's another 46,000 people that have already died from this so do you deserve to feel should you feel the way you feel when everybody else may be in your, the same situation am I unique am I not unique there's just too many questions not enough answers and not enough support for the for the people that are left so how are you how are you doing now now Joe that is a terrible story I, I I'm a bit taken aback because I wasn't quite expecting to hear that uh, I mean I knew something I knew some of the stuff that's been going on for you but that's that's really it's very upsetting and moving story and very difficult and thank you for you know telling it so eloquently how are you feeling now I still feel lost um and it is the fact that all the aunties so everybody's my auntie whether they're related or not in our culture anybody older than you is your auntie or your uncle and I've, I've been left with so many great uh, aunties that are looking after me but I feel so yesterday I spent the first three hours of yesterday morning crying um, because now there's, it's it's even more real but you haven't got you haven't got the support I haven't I can't my friends can't come over um so i'm i'm just feeling very very lost and wanting i, I don't think it's people I, we're not recognized i feel like we are a group of people that are not recognized and our voices aren't being heard and i think that's a lot to do with the media not wanting our voices to, to be heard um yeah you mean people the meet the people in general just they just don't want to look at this look too hard at the at this very difficult stuff yes yeah i think i think they don't want to because it's going to open up it's opened up so many questions i mean you know about uh hospitals and the way they've controlled it 
you know and, and that's a huge big question of not just the hospital where my mum was but of, of others as well and um so I, and I still and now like you know we're saying that it feels like we're, we're heading into another another lockdown but have we learned the lessons from the first one doesn't feel like that no no I, I would say very few lessons seem to be learned why is that because they're not talking about it you can only learn if you share experiences but not willing to do you think uh the government has failed i mean it has failed you and your family hasn't it yes yes yeah with not enough answers um and not enough you know the thing you have to remember also is that the knock-on effect of how you register a death you can't you don't go in anymore so that takes longer um everything takes longer because everybody's you know is saying well you know things are slow because of covid yeah and you can't get away from it that's i think when you have when there is somebody who's passed away because of covid uh and it it totally was for my mum it it was not a secondary as far as i'm concerned not a secondary at all it was the major um that um you are reminded every single day unless you decide not to listen to any tv any radio or pick up a paper and that's that that's the problem is that you are reminded on a constant basis that in that total i think in that total of 45,985 one of them is my mum I'm very struck as well by what you talked about the way in which um, all those processes of leading up to and after a death which are difficult enough anyway but we do have some ritual behaviours that we do around them each each in different ways and uh, and everything's blocked though now joe you know that like you said you, you couldn't do nine nights you couldn't do you know there's, there's registering the death took so much longer there's all these blockages in the way of all the stuff that would be our normal human interaction so all these blocks in the way that prevent us from being able to do the things that we need to do to come through those difficult times you know uh and and it, so, so, so it's just this additional layer of difficulty um, I, I also... yeah. there's the I think for my dad um, I think for him it was definitely not being able to say goodbye and also not being able to see her even at the funeral parlour that it's a closed coffin and, and closed coffins are not a tradition of, <laughs> of the West Indian culture you know you at a funeral that's what you do you go the coffin is open and that's where you say goodbye. You say goodbye face to face. Yeah. And not being able to dress them. Um, just those tiny little basic things that now in this situation means so much. Yeah. You have been listening to The Parallel State.